Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. A government cover-up that concealed a top-secret weapon. This was something that the government did not want discussed. A legendary beast loose in the mountains of Nepal. They look human-like but ape-like all at the same time. And a cache of sunken treasure that lay hidden for more than 100 years. They had to search a broad area to find a needle in a haystack. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Just across the river from our nation's capital is Arlington, Virginia, home to the Drug Enforcement Administration Museum. Its unique collection documents the agency's fight against illegal drugs and aims to educate the public about the dangers of addiction. But amidst the warning signs of abuse lies evidence of a rare and extraordinary victory. One word emblazoned on its surface hints at the importance of the contents within. It's a dossier of photographs. These simple images tell a tale of incredible ingenuity. When two New York cops took on one of the most powerful drug operations of all time, in an epic case that changed police work forever. So how did these lawmen pull off one of the biggest drug busts in American history? 1961. Nearly 25% of America's drug addicts can be found in New York City. And according to former DEA agent John Coleman, their drug of choice is heroin. Heroin seemed to be the drug that was not only available but cheap. And the demand for heroin was insatiable. 
The flow of this drug is almost impossible to stem. It's found all over the city, and it hails from many corners of the globe. But two New York City narcotics cops have made it their mission to curtail this unseemly trade. Their names? Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso. One night in early October, after finishing their shift, Grasso and Egan head to the infamous Copacabana for a nightcap. They worked very hard. They also played hard. And so when they were finished for the day, they always managed to find a watering hole where they could have a drink and talk about the day. But the Copacabana is no ordinary club. It's a notorious hideout for celebrities, high rollers, and crooks. And Grasso and Egan know all the players. But there was a guy there that they didn't know. And he raised their suspicions. To the two cops, this mystery man has all the trademarks of a gangster. He's flashing large wads of cash as he entertains his guests. He's definitely important, but they don't know why because they don't know who he is. Egan and Grasso learn that their mystery man's name is Patsy Fuca and that he's associated with the Lucchese Crime Syndicate, one of the five families of the New York City mob, major players in the local heroin racket. Fuca is put under surveillance and his phones are wiretapped. His movements were very suspicious to these detectives. Could Fuca be a kingpin of the city's heroin trade? To find out, the cops extend their surveillance to cover Fuca's known associates. Then, in early 1962, Grasso spots one of Fuca's men running a red light. Sensing that a deal is about to go down, they pull the car over and arrest the man. But when they question him, they discover something odd. The car's driver is not a New York mobster, but a French TV star. His name is Jacques Angelvin. Didn't make much sense why this person would even be involved. Police arrest and search Angelvin, but find nothing incriminating. Grasso and Egan are stumped. With no hard evidence against the Frenchman, they return to their original suspect, Brooklyn mobster Patsy Fuca. Finally, they get their break. They track Fuca to his father's house. And when the cops search the premises, they find the hall they have been looking for. 24 pounds of pure heroin. This is a photo of the suitcase containing 24 pounds of heroin that was seized from the ceiling panels of Patsy Fuca's father's house. Grasso and Egan are ecstatic. They've pulled off the largest narcotics raid in the history of the NYPD. But this hall was just the tip of the iceberg. It seems Fuca was expecting a much larger shipment of heroin, but it's missing. So where is it? And how were the mobsters getting it into the country? Grasso and Egan re-examine the evidence on the mysterious French suspect Jacques Angelvin. Desperate for a clue, the cops scour his travel documents and learn that he's shipped his Buick sedan from France to New York. And his plans for a return voyage reveal a curious detail. It was indicating that uh, the car that he had brought with him, that there had been a miscalculation of the weight that it actually was about 112 pounds lighter than when it arrived in New York. Why would a car returning to France be 112 pounds lighter than when it arrived in America? 
Could the answer be so deceptively simple? Is Angel Van transporting heroin in his car? They began seeing stars because it, it would represent the largest heroin case, the largest drug bust ever made in, in America, not just New York City. Police searched the Buick again. They realized that it wasn't as easy as just looking in the trunk or under the seat. This time, they tear the car apart. And finally, they discover what they've been looking for. Hidden under the front fender, behind the headlights, they find secret compartments. And in them are trace elements of heroin. Investigators conclude that the Frenchman, Angelvan, had smuggled over 112 pounds of heroin on this trip alone, and that he was part of a massive syndicate of traffickers who smuggled drugs to the U.S. in cars. A syndicate known as the French Connection. And it was the tireless work and dogged determination of Grasso and Egan that finally blew the case wide open. Uh, not many victories in this so-called war on drugs, but ending the French Connection certainly was one. And these photographs in the archives of the Drug Enforcement Agency Museum remind us that with hard work, commitment, and ruthless attention to detail, even the toughest cases can be cracked. Wall Street, New York City. Just a few steps away from the New York Stock Exchange sits an institution that celebrates the spirit of capitalism. This is the Museum of American Finance. Among the obsolete dollar bills, documents, and rare coins is something eye-catching and extraordinary. It measures roughly 12 inches by 4 inches, but weighs an astonishing 60 pounds. It's like it's attached to the table. <laughs> you just can't move it. You can barely slide it. According to Rare Coins expert Adam Crum, this bar of pure gold is worth $2.5 million. But this gleaming brick didn't start out as a museum piece. It was part of one of the biggest treasure halls ever made. So how did a huge shipment of gold end up on the bottom of the ocean? And how was it recovered more than a century after it was thought to be lost forever? 1857. The California gold rush is in full swing. 70 to $100 million a year were literally just coming out of the ground and into the U.S. economy. The gold is routinely melted into coins and bricks in San Francisco, then shipped to the financial centers of the Northeast. And in the summer of 1857, three tons of this gold is making its way from San Francisco to the banks of New York City. But what no one knows is that this routine shipment is about to meet disaster on the high seas. September 3rd, 1857. The SS Central America departs from Panama with a fortune in gold dust, coins, and ingots. Aboard the SS Central America was about $2 million in gold value at the time. For the 600 people on board, it's an ordinary trip until the vessel rounds the Florida Keys and sails straight into the path of a hurricane. In the 20-foot swells, the ship springs a leak. 
and by September 12th, it had taken on so much water that they knew the ship was doomed and it was headed down. Other ships nearby managed to save 153 people. But at 8 p.m. Saturday, September 12th, the Central America disappears into the ocean. Over 400 lives and three tons of California gold are lost. The gold that went down on the SS Central America, it's said to have been equal to one-fifth of all the gold in the coffers of New York. It was presumably lost forever. At the time, the sinking of the SS Central America represents the worst peacetime disaster at sea in the country's history. But the unprecedented loss of wealth also sends shockwaves through the economy. Without gold to meet payrolls or pay creditors, banking transactions grind to a halt. And the so-called Panic of 1857 takes hold. People were literally in the streets in masses demanding money, and banks were closing their doors left and right. One of the worst recessions of the 19th century is set off in part by a lost treasure sitting almost two miles under the sea. For the next 120 years, people dream about finding the wreck. Its location is a mystery, and the technology to locate the ship doesn't exist. But that's not about to stop a brilliant young scientist named Tommy Thompson. He was studying engineering and deep water exploration was his, his passion. Thompson convinces a group of investors to fund his expedition. And in 1986, the research vessel, the Arctic Discoverer, sets out to explore a stretch of ocean larger than the state of Rhode Island. They had to search a broad area to find a needle in a haystack. But this expedition is different from any other. It's armed with a high-tech device that Thompson has invented, a massive underwater robot called Nemo. These guys literally were on a ship like video games, playing with joysticks, and they're trying to locate anything that might be uh, the SS Central America. On September 11th, 1988, after two years of searching, the Arctic discoverer is probing the waters 160 miles off the coast of South Carolina when it gets a blip on its sonar screen. Nemo is sent down to explore. On the video feeds is a shadowy outline. What was looking back in the cameras at them was this massive iron side wheel. It's the side wheel of a 19th century steamship. Could this be the long lost SS Central America? It's 1857. The SS Central America is caught in a violent storm and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Its cargo? More than $150 million in pure gold. Over a century later, the crew of a treasure hunting vessel searching off the Carolina coast gets a sudden blip on its sonar screen. Could this be the long-lost SS Central America? And if so, are there millions of dollars in gold just sitting there, waiting to be recovered? On board the Arctic Discoverer, 
the video feed beams up an unmistakable image. Sitting on the ocean floor is the wreck of a steamship. And among the shattered ruins, Tommy Thompson and his team of treasure hunters find what they've been searching for. Gleaming brilliantly in the glare of the searchlights are massive piles of gold. They're literally jumping up and down for joy. A 130-year-old mystery is finally solved. Thompson and his crew have located the wreck of the SS Central America. That is great, my <laughs> word. And these coins came up in pristine condition. The gold ingots that came up, I mean, they just glow. Although Thompson's group is ultimately forced to share their find with a group of insurance companies who demanded reimbursement for the claims they paid out in 1857. When the group sells off their gold, their yield is between 100 and 150 million dollars. Though they have invested about 10 million dollars in the project, their hard work and determination has paid off tenfold. Today, one of the largest recovered gold ingots from the wreck is on display in downtown Manhattan at the Museum of American Finance. A reminder of the tragic loss of the SS Central America and its incredible rediscovery. The great state of Indiana was once the boyhood home of one of America's most beloved presidents, Abraham Lincoln. And today, the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne houses an extraordinary collection of artifacts dedicated to preserving the legacy of the 16th president. But deep in the archives is the collection's most haunting relic, a photograph that Lincoln librarian Cindy Van Horn says instantly makes visitors stop in their tracks. When I first saw this photo, I got an otherworldly feeling about it. At first glance, the photograph appears to be a simple commissioned portrait of former First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. But according to fellow Lincoln librarian Jane Gastineau, there's something special about this aged, yellowing photograph. Someone special. Behind her stands a sort of semi-transparent image with his hands protectively on her shoulders. It's the unmistakable figure of Mary's husband and the country's president, Abraham Lincoln. But this photograph was taken in 1872, seven years after his assassination. Could this really be a photograph of Abraham Lincoln's ghost? April 14, 1865, Washington, D.C. President Lincoln is taking in a performance at Ford's Theater with his wife, Mary, when suddenly the unthinkable happens. An actor named John Wilkes Booth shoots the president in the back of the head, killing him at the age of 56. The nation is stunned by this brutal crime. But it's his wife, Mary, who takes his death the hardest. She was so grief-stricken. She couldn't eat. She didn't want to see anyone. He was her world. Mary seeks relief from her real-life suffering through the practice of spiritualism. Spiritualism was a relatively new movement. It started in 1848, and it very quickly gathered a lot of adherents. 
She and other followers believe only a thin veil separates the living and the dead, and that gifted spirit mediums can bridge the gulf between the material and spirit worlds. Some people found it comforting to think that one could reach beyond the veil, and they are able to communicate through that veil by means of seances, trances. Mary is not a newcomer to spiritualism. Having previously lost two young sons, she had desperately tried to reach them in the afterlife, holding well-publicized seances while in the White House, with even President Lincoln rumored to be in attendance. For the spiritualists, She's a celebrity. Spiritualists actually try to attach themselves to Abraham and Mary Lincoln. But the Lincolns also face ridicule from those skeptical of their beliefs. So in the years following Lincoln's death, Mary not only seeks out mediums that will reunite her with her slain husband, she begins a quest for tangible proof that the spirit of her beloved stays with her. She decided she would seek out a man named William Mumler, who took what were called spirit photographs. In 1872, seven years after her husband's assassination, Mary pays a visit to Mumler. Mumler claims he can reach the spirits of the dead, can capture them in portraits with their still-living loved ones. The resulting picture reveals a strikingly eerie image. A spectral Abraham Lincoln looming over his seated wife. It seems as if the dead president's spirit has been captured on film. Mary rejoices and shares the photo with the country. Mary believes that this is a proof. She has it on paper in black and white. But does this unearthly portrait really prove that ghosts of the dead continue to live on around us? In the archives of Indiana's Allen County Public Library is what appears to be a formal portrait of First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. But a closer inspection reveals she is not alone. The ghostly image of her husband, President Abraham Lincoln, can be seen standing behind her. But the photograph was taken seven years after Lincoln's assassination. So is this a picture of Abraham Lincoln's ghost? Mary is convinced her husband has reached out from beyond the grave. But some people have their doubts. They accuse the photographer, a man by the name of William Mumler, of using technical trickery to achieve his spirit photos. There were people who believe that Mumler was making those spirit photographs to swindle people. But in his lifetime, no one can prove Mumler's fraudulent methods and Mumler brings all evidence to the grave with him, burning his negatives before his death. Through all of this, Mary continues to insist the photo is real, even as her mental health diminishes. She began hearing voices. Finally, Mary's son Robert institutionalizes her in an asylum, and she dies seven years later. But the mystery remains. How are ghostly visions like Mary's photo created? Photography experts today believe that Mumler used a technique called double exposure. First, he would take a photo of his living subject. 
Then he would take the unprocessed negative and expose it to a pre-existing image of the deceased loved one, thereby allowing a faint Abraham Lincoln to be superimposed onto Mary's seated portrait. In the end, whether the photo is real or faked, it gives Mary the spiritual uplift she needs and brings her the closeness she so desired with her murdered husband. One of the reasons this photograph is so intriguing is that it tells you how traumatic and sad her life had been and that to a certain extent she found hope in the fact that the spirit of Abraham Lincoln stood behind her with his hands on her shoulders. One of her most distinguished presidents, cut down tragically before his time, lives on in this mysterious photograph at the Allen County Public Library in Indiana. Nestled in the tranquil New England town of Meriden, Connecticut, is the Connecticut State Police Museum. And one of its more fascinating artifacts is a stash of shiny silver tokens. These coins are about the size of a silver dollar. They weigh about an ounce, an ounce and a half. They're made of pure silver. According to former police officer Jerry Longo, coins like these were once commonplace on the floors of American casinos. These are $100 slot tokens. They celebrate the grand opening of the Mohegan Sun Casino and feature an image of Ancus, who was a Mohegan tribal leader. Gamblers used slot tokens like these instead of real money to play slot machines. If the gamblers won at the slots, the machine paid these tokens, which the gamblers would exchange for cash at the casino cage. So what part did these innocent-looking slot tokens play in one of the most ingenious casino scams in living memory? And who was the mastermind behind it? 1996, Atlantic City. Millions of visitors a year flock to the biggest gambling resort town on the East Coast. Each casino has its own inventory of slot tokens and knows exactly how many are in circulation at any given time. But one night, a casino manager notices that the number of slot tokens in circulation is suddenly increasing. It's a clue that someone might be bringing counterfeit tokens into the casino to play the slot machines and leaving with real money. If you're in a business that relies heavily on these tokens, just how scared are you at this point? Because you don't know where these things are being made or where they're coming from. Sergeant Jerry Longo is one of the police officers called in to investigate. His team discovers that 35 different casinos in Connecticut, New Jersey, and Las Vegas also have fake tokens in circulation. It was a guy who was out there stealing millions of dollars. The police set up video surveillance of the slot machines, but to no avail. Then they catch a lucky break. The counterfeiter makes a tactical error and starts making and using $100 slot tokens. A lot of the casinos have single fixed cameras on an individual $100 slot machine because the jackpots are so large. The Connecticut and New Jersey police see a variety of men winning over and over. But looking more closely at the tapes, the different men all start to look alike. He would wear disguises. 
but he was always in the presence of the same woman. With their cover blown, this mystery couple becomes the prime target of police surveillance. And it's not long before they're able to come up with a name. Louis Colavecchio, a 54-year-old jeweler from Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Outside a casino in Atlantic City, the police lie in wait for Colavecchio. And in the parking lot, he and his girlfriend are greeted by the full fury of the law. They cuffed him, they patted him down, they searched the vehicle. And what the police find in the trunk of Colavecchio's car is beyond their wildest dreams. It's 1996. Casinos across the country find their coffers are filled with counterfeit slot machine tokens. Police close in on a suspect, Louis Colavecchio. When they go to arrest him, what they find in the trunk of his car breaks the case wide open. They found 750 pounds of coins. They found maps of the casinos. All of the things that you would need to commit those crimes was right inside that vehicle. When police raid Colavecchio's home, what they discover there is even more astounding. We opened the door and it was like stepping into the U.S. Mint down in Washington. Huge printing press and tools and laser cutting items and pieces of slot machines. The police seem to have caught the man who's been flooding the casinos with counterfeit coins and raking in millions. But the question remains, how did Colavecchio make these picture-perfect counterfeit coins? In his house, investigators find an intricate system in place. A system only an experienced jeweler could design. He would take tokens from casinos, have them sent out to metallurgical sites. He would get a report back that would give him the metal content in each of those coins. He would then purchase that metal stock so when he minted the coins with his press, they were exactly the same to what the casinos had purchased. He even used a tumbling machine to give his fake coins the right amount of wear and tear. With the evidence they need, the police charge Louis the coin with counterfeiting, forgery, and larceny. As part of a plea deal, he serves less than three years in prison. Colavecchio later admits he's been running the scam for over four years. When I asked him how much money he made, he didn't answer. It was definitely upwards of $3 million. Louis Colavecchio's counterfeiting scam changed the way casinos around the country do business. Slot machine tokens have been replaced by ATM debit cards. And those changes can be traced directly back to the Connecticut State Police Museum and the little silver discs jangling around its back room. In Portland, Maine, there is an institution that may hold the key to a mystery of monstrous proportions. This is the International Cryptozoology Museum. Its subject, explains founder Lauren Coleman, is a very specific type of creature. 
Cryptozoology is the study of hidden or unknown animals, animals that have not been classified by science yet. The collection features replicas of mythic animals from around the globe. However, the most groundbreaking object is not an artistic representation of a beast. This is extremely important because you just don't see anything like it in the world. Brown, covered in tape, and preserved between two thick sheets of plastic. This is a sample of fecal material collected in the 1950s from what some believe is a legendary beast. Nepal, 1900. The folklore of this country is littered with tales of encounters with a bizarre creature. Literally for thousands of years, we have reports of large, hairy creatures. They're usually brown, and they look human-like but ape-like all at the same time. Locals have many names for the creature. Their tales describe the beast as cunning and elusive. It has never been captured. The legend of the creature grows and in the 1920s spreads to the West, where it is referred to as the Yeti. But without biological proof of the creature, the scientific community remains skeptical. But one man is determined to change that. His name is Tom Slick. Tom Slick was a significant figure in the whole cryptozoology field. A wealthy oil man with a passion for exotic animal species, in the 1950s, Slick puts together numerous expeditions to Nepal, all with a simple goal, to find scientific proof of the Yeti. 1957, traipsing through the foothills of the Himalayas, Slick and his team make an astonishing discovery. On the bank of a stream, preserved in mud, they find an unusual footprint. The shape and size do not look human. Slick and his team are convinced that it was made by a yeti. He found the evidence, and that was quite important at the time. But Slick is not satisfied. While the footprint is an intriguing find, it does not conclusively prove the Yeti's existence. Determined to find irrefutable scientific evidence, the Slick expedition continues on. And two years later, down in a valley, the team spots a curious form. The creature has brown fur and ape-like features, but stands on two legs. They watch it from a distance, stunned by what they're witnessing. Could this be the elusive beast they've been searching for, the legendary Yeti? For hundreds of years, people have been fascinated by a mysterious ape-like animal said to roam the Himalayas, the Yeti. But does this creature really exist? An explorer named Tom Slick is determined to find out. What he discovers could shake the world of science to its core. 1959, Nepal. 
Tom Slick's team has stumbled upon a mysterious creature in the forest. Right at dusk, they saw this little yeti. But before they can get a closer look, the creature flees. So the team moves in to examine what, if anything, it has left behind. The important thing that they gathered was fecal material. The fecal matter is collected and preserved for scientific examination. His material is very exciting because it was the first collected by Western science. Could this fecal sample offer proof that what the Slick expedition encountered really was a Yeti? In search of a definitive answer, it is sent to a lab in France for testing. When it was tested by the French laboratories in the 1950s, it was found to contain an egg of a parasite. The parasite is called a whipworm and is associated with a wide variety of mammals. And every mammal afflicted with the whipworm has its own distinct classification of the parasite. But according to Coleman, the type of whipworm found in the slick sample has never been seen before. If the whipworm found in this fecal sample is unknown to science, does it mean that the animal it came from is also an unknown creature? And could that mysterious creature be a yeti? It doesn't prove Yeti exists, but it's a piece of evidence. While scientists have not classified the animal this sample came from, Yeti sightings continue to occur. And the specimen on display at the International Museum of Cryptozoology remains the best piece of evidence that in the Himalayan mountainsides, there may be a creature we call Yeti. From nuclear testing devices to the nation's most powerful thermonuclear bomb, these are just some of the Cold War relics on display at the Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. But among the spine-chilling artifacts is a surprisingly humble object, a battered piece of aluminum that fascinates Las Vegas resident and history buff Steve Ryrie. If you were to pick it up in the street, you wouldn't really think that it had any significance at all. But in reality, it identifies a very, very top-secret aircraft. This plate is a fragment from a wrecked plane that was part of a top-secret government program conducted within the confines of the most infamous military base in America. A base that some believe harbors evidence of UFOs and alien technology. Its official name, Groom Lake, better known as Area 51. To what secretive military project did this scrap of metal belong? And how was it linked to Area 51? November 17, 1955, Burbank, California. An Air Force transport plane takes off for a remote site in the Nevada desert. On board are 14 passengers and crew, including CIA officers, scientists, and aerospace engineers. It's a top-secret mission. They were told to fly without the use of radio, so they couldn't be tracked. But before long, the plane flies into a winter storm. The pilot realizes he's dangerously off course and breaks protocol. 
he broke radio silence in order to get a bearing on, on where he was at, but he received no answering call. Without assistance from ground control, the plane crashes into the side of Mount Charleston. All on board are killed. The government instantly went into a mode of protecting the site. They had very, very, very important and sensitive material that actually was on the plane. Material regarding a military project so top secret that even the victims' families were kept in the dark about where the plane was headed. But recovery efforts are hampered by the nearly impassable and snow-covered terrain. They brought in special alpine train teams to break a trail up to the, the site and bring down that sensitive material and the bodies of those who perished. The recovery team has no choice but to leave behind the rest of the charred wreckage, including this identification plate, which labels the wreck as a C-54 military transport plane. The government instantly began to cover it up. They completely stonewalled the media at the time. This was something that the government did not want discussed. Officials claim that the flight was carrying civilian contractors to the Atomic Energy Commission's Nevada testing site, where the U.S. government tested its nuclear weapons. But according to CIA documents declassified in 1998, their destination was not the Nevada testing site, but a mysterious Air Force base known as Area 51. Area 51 would later become the frequent subject of rumors and speculation about aliens and UFOs. We've seen all kinds of stories about alien aircraft, uh, strange lights, having alien bodies stored there. What is the truth behind the doomed aircraft, and how is it linked to the bizarre stories that surround Area 51? It's 1955. A military transport plane mysteriously crashes in the middle of the Nevada desert, killing all on board. For decades, all information about this plane crash is labeled classified. Even the family members of those who died in the crash are kept in the dark. What was the top secret mission this plane was carrying out? And is there a link between this aircraft and the mysterious Air Force Base known as Area 51? Declassified documents reveal that the men who died in the crash on Mount Charleston were building a bizarre new flying machine. But it had nothing to do with aliens. The flight to Area 51 on that day was to see the second test flight of the U-2 spy plane. The U-2 spy plane is perhaps the most innovative and important military project of the Cold War. This single-engine reconnaissance jet is able to snap high-resolution photographs from an altitude of 70,000 feet. It's designed to steal into Soviet airspace and spy on the enemy undetected. But the key to its success is secrecy. And that's why, actually, Area 51 ever came into being, is to actually take the U-2 and to develop it away from prying eyes. Although the brilliant men who built the U-2 never lived to see it soar, 
their goal of changing our espionage capability forever is realized. And at the Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, this weathered aluminum plate bears witness to their sacrifice during a critical moment in American history. From counterfeit coins to faked photographs, elusive beasts to sunken treasure. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.